everyone. Welcome to The Gifted Place, a professional learning community for gifted education. I'm your host, Sonia Aziz. We're talking today with Dr. Matt Zakreski, lead clinician and co-founder of the Neurodiversity Collective, a private practice that aims to serve neurodiverse children, adolescents, and their families. Dr. Zakreski is a member of Supporting the Emotional Needs of the Gifted, the National Association for Gifted Children, and the New Jersey Association for Gifted Children. He's also a member of the Pennsylvania Association for Gifted Education. Welcome, Dr. Matt Zakreski. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think it would be really helpful for educators and parents to understand that the emotionally intense responses typically associated with asynchronous development in gifted children are due to neurological wiring in the brain, something that's out of their control. So how do we break the historical view of heightened emotional response as something negative? That's a fabulous question. And we could spend the rest of this podcast talking about that. So I will try to limit my answer. Like most interventions, it's a bi-directional thing, right? We need to change the expectations of the adults in schools And we need to give our kids the skills to manage the things they have. So both pieces of that have to be true, right? So, you know, schools are designed, first and foremost, to teach neurotypical kids, right? Kids who look and act largely a similar way. They're not built to handle neurodiverse kids. And like you said, right, I mean, gifted individuals have different brains. That's why giftedness has a seat at the table when it comes to neurodiversity. And so when kids have different brains, they need different accommodations, right? Gifted education is special education. It's just on the other end of the IQ spectrum, right? Traditionally, we've done a great job serving kids on the lower end of it, and we should never, ever, ever stop doing that. But we need to keep those structures and strategies and empathy and just flip it on the other side, right? That's where we – so it's about accommodations, you know, and while we do that, while we build the accommodations around what our kids need, then we shift our focus as well to give our kids the skills they need to regulate their brains and bodies. At the end of the day, we have kids who have overdeveloped emotional systems and underdeveloped self-regulation systems, and we send them out into the world filled with chaos and unpredictable people and say, you've got this, right? And like, they don't, right? Right. So the first thing we say about destigmatizing emotional response is that it's a human thing to do. Everybody gets upset. Everybody gets angry. Everybody gets their feelings hurt. Everybody gets grumpy, whatever the feeling might be. Now, gifted individuals, on a, if you know feelings are on a scale of 1 to 10, they tend to feel them at 11, right? Or 12, 13, 14, 15. So the idea, we first established that feelings are normal. And then we establish that your feelings are likely to be bigger or more intense. Now, in psychology, we never try to rid, get rid of a feeling. It doesn't work that way. Instead, I always tell parents to conceptualize it as what we call the big three, frequency, intensity, and duration. So if you're having panic attacks, I want you to have fewer panic attacks that are less intense and that last, short, last for short periods of time. If we set our expectations there, it's a diminishing effect over time rather than I have panic attacks. I don't want to have panic attacks. So therefore, my my goal is to have zero. But if your goal is to have zero, the first time you have a panic attack, you've failed. And given the wiring of the gifted brain, 
intense goals like that tend to set up with something we call the struggle switch, which is when you get upset and then you get upset that you're upset, right? So not only have I failed in my goal to not have a panic attack, now I'm upset with myself for failing in my goal. And now I'm angry at myself for being upset with myself. And now I'm scared that I'm angry that, right? It just builds and builds and builds and builds. So it's about setting appropriate expectations, both externally, but also internally, right? Giving our kids the language of frequency, intensity, and duration to say, yeah, it's okay that you're upset. Let's see how we can minimize the impact of that as best we possibly can. How can our understanding that the gifted brain is emotionally connected inform strategies for intervention? So good brain science, I think, should inform many of the interventions we use. The more we know about ourselves and our brains, the more information we have. And information almost always leads to better interventions. When I was doing my research for my dissertation while I was in grad school, I I thought I knew a lot about giftedness because I grew up as a gifted kid. I understood a lot of the pieces of it. But the more I read, the more I was like, oh, that explains so much. And I, frankly, I think it makes me a better psychologist and I think it makes me a better person. But, you know, I think it's just knowledge is power, right? And given the lack of information out there about giftedness and given the sort of the myths and the misconceptions around giftedness, giving our kids the whole picture, I think, empowers them to do better, right? Because, one, you know, I've seen hundreds of kids for therapy. And almost all of them at some point or another have said, I'm smart. Isn't this supposed to be easy? Right? And I always tell them it's not that simple. Smart isn't easy. Some things come easy to you. Some things come really hard. There's a lot of developmental stuff. There's a lot of brain stuff. It's not just as simple as gifted kids get straight A's because it doesn't work that way. But since that is so baked into the environments our kids find themselves in, they are wittingly or unwilling, wittingly dealing with those expectations, which is raising the stakes of how they feel in the environments they're in. There was a study from uh, Johns Hopkins where they found that gifted kids hear the word Harvard 10,000 times by the time they start high school. I mean, think about it. It's like, you better go to the best school on planet Earth yeah, or else what? I mean, like, my goodness, right? That's terrifying. Yeah. And especially just as educators, when you're in the classroom and the kids are so tense all the time because they're thinking like, when's the test? Every time you give them a piece of information, it's like, are we getting tested on this? And when is the next test? So it's really hard to balance just having fun with the learning. And how about we just focus on that for a little bit? But it's hard sometimes because they're just wired differently. Yeah. Well, and that's why gifted schools are so important because it allows us to detangle the process of learning from the process of assessment. You know, I mean, if you gave a kid an access to a school and said, what do you want to learn today? I want to read some books. I want to play some Fortnite. I want to kick a soccer ball around and I want to play Legos. Those things all sound awesome. Those things all have intrinsic academic value. They help our kids learn and grow. There's wonderful things. Notice how none of those things were, I would really like to take a spelling test. I'm really interested in making sure that I do a timed math problem worksheet because like, we you know, I mean, learning and education are two very different things. And I think that 
while I understand the need for some of the educational structures that exist, I think a lot of schools are detangling from that now because it's like, we want our kids to learn and be challenged and and explore. And it's awfully hard to do that when the stakes are so artificially raised because, to your point, will this be on the test? Adults often ask children to use their words when they're upset, when there's a high emotional load that needs to be processed and an undeveloped breaking system in gifted children. Is that request even feasible? It's usually not feasible when we give it. It will become feasible at some point, right? But the idea here is the more upset the brain becomes, your brain is basically moving to threat state. It's like, I am going to either fight this problem, freeze, or run away from this problem. And so your brain is throwing all of its energies into those core systems, which means the stuff that makes us ourselves, right? Our our personalities, our coping strategies, our creativity goes offline because our brain's like, I'm in danger right now. I don't, it's not really important right now who my favorite you know, character on Rick and Morty is. It's more important, like, how fast can I run away from this problem? But since our coping strategies are nested in the part of the brain that's going offline, many helpful, well-intentioned adults will say to the kids, just tell me what's wrong. And not only is the brain offline at that point, but it's an adding a demand to a stressed system. So the kid's going to freak out even more you know, and this is how kids get labels that they're unmanageable or they're oppositional, they're nonverbal. Well, you know, I think those words get thrown around a lot. And I think it's, it's functionally missing the point. The number one thing that I do as a therapist is I hold space for things. Somebody says something to me, it's not my job to solve it. It's not my job to fix it. It's my job to sit with it. And if in sitting with it, we come up with some strategies, terrific, right? So as parents, educators, counselors, mental health professionals, coaches, what we do is first and foremost is we hold space. If your child comes in and I had the worst day ever of all time and they throw themselves on the ground sobbing and crying, this is not a time to get chapter and verse because it's just your kid will give it to you when they are able to give it to you. And it's scary and it's difficult because our brains go like, well, I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something. You are doing something. By holding space, you are doing a thing. And that is the best thing you can do right now. When we add noise to a noisy situation, it almost always makes it worse. So once your kid calms down, you can then move into the tell me what happened. I'm here to support you. Right. But it's about having the courage and the knowledge to say, my kid's offline right now. I'm going to just sit here and make sure they're safe until they come back online, and then we'll figure out where to go from there. So, you know, it's being willing to enter into that space first and foremost. Yeah, and I can understand how it's beneficial to put on your own oxygen mask Mm -hmm. before responding to an emotionally intense child. What else can parents and educators do to position themselves to really focus on the child in the urgency of that moment to hold this space, as you're saying? Is it something that like, do we just sit with them? Do we just give them a hug? Is it something, you know, more than that? You know, asking for permission is a great thing to do. 
And there are some things I'll ask for permission with and some things I won't, you know, you know, I always ask permission to touch a child, right? And because, you know, I'm a big dude, right? I'm six foot, I'm 200 plus pounds. Like if I come up to a kid, like, give me a hug, they may not feel like they can say no. So if I'm sitting with a child and they're upset, I'll be like, hey, can I put my arm around your shoulders? Or hey, like, you know, do you want to hold my hand, right? I'll ask permission for that. And even if a kid is relatively offline, they can communicate thumbs up, thumbs down, right? Any sort of nonverbals, shaking head, shaking head. Great. Thank you for telling me that, right? The other thing is communicating into the space. And this is what, you know, we, a lot of times we call meta communication or talking about talking. So telling kids what you're going to do, what you're doing and why you're doing it, not only informs them, but it makes them feel like they're part of the solution. It empowers, it raises their seat at the table. So I once had a kid who had, you know, a really rough day at a school I used to work at, and he really wanted to get out of my office into the hallway to beat up somebody else. And he was relatively justified in in wanting to do that, but I, of course, wasn't going to let him. And so I was just between him and the door, and he's sobbing and screaming and calling me every name in the book. And I just kept saying, I'm here for you, buddy. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm here for you. I'm going to keep you safe. I probably said that a hundred times. And after 50 minutes, five zero, he took a step back and he just broke down in my arms and just sobbing, crying. Right. And, you know, and we, we held space for that. And, you know, so sometimes as the adults who love these kids, our job is to keep them safe. You know, until you can, your brain comes back online he would be a risk to himself and others if I let him run into the hallway. So sometimes it's about, I'm going to keep you here until, until we are safe to go somewhere else. And that can be scary to do. But if you see that in context, right, if you see this, that I am helping their brains calm down, right. Rather than I'm punishing or with restricting my child, I think it gets a little easier for us. Maybe never easy, but easier for us as the adults to to understand that what we're doing is based in good psychological science. The aftermath of an emotionally intense response can have long-lasting effects on a child's self-esteem. How can educators and parents deliver interventions that mitigate feelings of embarrassment and provide emotional support to a vulnerable child? You know, the first thing that I always encourage adults to use is emotional validation language. So, you know, cause kids will say I'm wrong. I shouldn't have felt that way. Or I should, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I got angry or I, I'm sorry. I had a meltdown. Nobody chooses to get angry. Nobody chooses to have a panic attack or a meltdown or get into a fist fight on the playground. Nobody wakes up in the morning. I sure hope I can ruin my Tuesday. Right. I mean, that's not how kids operate. It's not how anybody operates. Right? If you drove in your car the way to work today, I sure hope I get some road rage on my, on, you know, the LIE, right? It's not a thing. So we can, by acknowledging that we say, listen, I know you didn't want to feel that way. I know you didn't want to get to that headspace. It sucks very much that you did. And I'm sorry it happened. Right. And just that conversation, just saying like, Hey, it's okay that you felt that way. It's one less battle for them to fight because it's not about dealing with the aftermath and having to apologize for your feelings. It's 
just dealing with the aftermath. Another thing that we, you know, sort of a fundamental piece of language here, as I tell all my clients, you can feel however you want about whatever you want. That is your right as a human being. Is what you do with those feelings that matter. So I usually set this up with my kids by saying, I'm terrified of clowns. And I am. I am legitimately scared of clowns. And so if a clown came into the room right now, my body would give me all sorts of threat alarms and I would want to run out of here. But that would not be very professional of me here in this podcast, right? Be like, like well, I got to go. Bye. There's a clown, right? So I am allowed to feel however I want to feel. It's what I do with the feelings that matter. That's what separates me. So if I could say, excuse me, there's a clown in my office and I need to take care of this. Can, can I come back in five minutes? That's much more appropriate than just running away, right? So kids will say like, you're telling me I'm not allowed to be angry, scared, f- freaked out, overwhelmed. You are totally allowed to do, do feel all of those things. You are not allowed to punch your brother because you didn't get the last chicken nugget. You are not allowed to flip a desk because you lost the science fair, right? Those are the things that we must apologize for. Those are the things we have to remedy. It's not the feelings. It's the behaviors that flowed from them. And good interventions are about identifying feelings and choosing the best possible option in that moment rather than sort of doubling down on behaviors that get kids in trouble. I think even with the the best intentions to kind of help children going when they're going through that, trying to prevent an emotional meltdown, whether it's in the grocery store or on a playground during recess, sometimes parents and educators just run out of luck Yeah, and nothing seems to work. You summed it up really great by saying, if you haven't carried your kid out of target, like a football running back, are you even a parent? I love this. It's so relatable and so important for parents and educators to remember that they're not alone and that it's not personal. Right. I think a lot of teachers sometimes kind of, they walk out steaming and they're like, oh my God, he said this to me and this is what, how can parents and educators reset their relationship with children after an emotional, you know, response? Well, one of the things I like to say is when we're dealing with the processing part of this, I like to start by talking about, have you ever been hangry? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, gifted and neurodiverse people are actually much more likely to become hangry or hypoglycemic because our brains use glucose at a much higher rate than neurotypical brains. So actually, hanger is a real thing within the gifted community. But all this comes back to this idea. It's like, I apologize for what I said when I was hungry, right? And then we all laugh about it because I think we've all been there, right? And we use that as a metric, as a model to have a conversation about what happened when we were upset, you know? This, I think, flows really nicely to accountability language, but also how context is everything. You know, we are having a very pleasant conversation right now. I'm enjoying talking to you quite a bit. If you decided that this podcast had to be filmed at three in the morning and my two-year-old was up screaming because he's got molars coming in, I would be much less pleasant in that moment, right? And you might be sitting there and be like, oh, Dr. Matt, I heard nice things about this guy. He's a train wreck. Well, think about the context, right? If Sally's one of your favorite students, but Sally has a rough rough time in gym and then comes to your class and ends up getting into a screaming fight with you, Sally is still Sally. She's not a bad person now, but the context has changed. And I think 
the skill set that most adults leave on the table is they don't roll with context. If the demands of the situation have shifted, we have to shift along with it. Now, that doesn't mean that we give up science class and we all sit in the circle and hug each other, unless that's appropriate, right? But it's the sort of thing where if you think about it like a, like a baseball, you know, if, if you have baseball practice and, and Frankie is out there and he's huffing and puffing and he's clearly overheaded, you don't make Frankie run sprints if he's sweating and bright red. You have him go sit in the shade and drink a Gatorade. Right. It's no different in a classroom environment. If Frankie's having a tough time with spelling, you don't have him do the competition spelling game you're doing. Hey, Frankie, you sit this round out or can you help me with something different, buddy? Can you keep score? That's shifting the demands as the situation dictates. Another piece of this that I think for parents is super helpful is the concept of intention versus impact. So, Kids will do and say things that can be very hurtful, right? And as we process this out, because as adults, right, we're allowed to get our feelings hurt too. We think about the intention and its impact, right? We think about, you know, did Roberto say that I'm a bad teacher because he thinks I'm a bad teacher Or does he say I'm a bad teacher because he's having a really bad day and I'm somebody he can lash out at? So there's a context piece. Then when we're processing with Roberto, it's like, hey, buddy, when you said that, it hurt my feelings. The impact on me was X. And I'll I'll bet you a steak dinner that he's like, well, that's not what I meant, right? I meant that school is stupid, that you're a good teacher. Sure, it still hurt my feelings, right? That's the impact piece. Once you say a thing, you release its impact to the world and you no longer have control over it, but it allows us to reframe the context around that, right? There's a big difference between I am seeing something cruel and intentional about you to hurt you. And I lashed out when I was upset. The emotional impact is still relevant, but the intention that connects to that allows, I think, gives us the opportunity to build in some context. What strategies can educators use to shift the focus from content to process in an effort to identify emotional drivers? The single biggest thing that we can do in in that situation is don't get sucked into the word game because gifted kids will use the verbal fire hose and they will talk and 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 talk. I once had a kid give me chapter and verse on, I wanted him to go outside to the playground and thus, because it was the dead of winter, I wanted him to wear a coat. He yelled at me for 40 minutes about how it was, and I, this is a direct quote, fascist to make him wear a coat. And, and it's funny because this is a great example of how none of us are perfect and we all have limits. I got frustrated with him. I got upset with him and I was like, you can't speak to me that way. Right. And but I had gotten sucked into his verbal stuff, right? After a while, I was able to pull myself out of it, step out of the content, the words he was saying, into the process, into why are he saying these things in this moment and how are they making me feel? Those data are much more relevant than what a kid is saying. And, you know, I realized as I was paying attention to it, this is a kid who's usually very compliant, usually wants to do, loves to go outside. So after a while, I was like, hey, Like, so you've made your point that you don't want to wear a coat. 
I'm going to ask you a question I haven't asked you yet. Why don't you want to wear a coat? And you get stupid. Sure. What makes it feel stupid? And so in doing so, I'm stepping him out of the content into the process of why. Why is he feeling this way? And what ended up happening was he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed that his coat wasn't as nice as everybody else's coat. He didn't want to go out to the playground with everybody else with their brand new ski jackets. Right? And and immediately I moved from a, I'm so frustrated I could throw this kid through a wall to I just want to wrap him up in a hug. You know, most of the time when kids have troubled behaviors, the explanation won't piss you off. Most of the time it's going to break your heart. Right? I've been the kid without the nice stuff on the playground. I get that. Right? And and it maybe it's not the coat. Maybe it's the haircut. Maybe it's the car you get dropped off in. Maybe it's the new video game. Whatever it might be. But our kids don't always have the language to say that or say that independently. Sometimes we have to sift through the content to get to the process. But as educators and, and, and parents and adults who love these kids, knowing that that's a thing, empowering yourself to say, how is this diatribe making me feel? Oh, it's making me feel overwhelmed and scared. That's a pretty good indication of how your kid is feeling in that moment. And then we go from, we're at loggerheads to we're aligned, we're on the same team. And I would even encourage you to use that meta communication piece, say, hey, this is making me feel overwhelmed and scared, which makes me think that maybe you're overwhelmed and scared. Can we talk about that? Can we have a conversation about your feelings right now? And what that does is it invites their participation. It well, it gives them a seat at the table. And I think maybe even most importantly, it says that I, your feelings are what matters here, not your 600th page of your explanation of why you can't possibly do math today. Right. And because that's a lot of work. And wouldn't we all just rather get to the crux of the problem? And to me, it it seems like it requires a lot of self-awareness and empathy from the adult to be able to even recognize Mm -hmm. that. Are there other skills that adults should be leaning into? Yeah. And had the benefit to work with many amazing teachers all over the world. Teachers say almost universally that they don't get trained in stuff like this. They don't get these skills. So what people do is they bring what works for them in their private lives into the classroom to do classroom management. And many of many times that works because most people who end up in the teaching and mental health professions are compassionate people who genuinely care and want to do well by these kids. But the tweaks that we're talking about here, you and I, are not earth shattering. No one's ever thought of this before. It's about doing good practice with intention and just broadening your sense of context and your communication skills around the things that are happening. I spent five years in grad school waiting for them to teach me a thing that I was like, wait, oh, that's what it is. That's how you make depression go away. But then you realize it really, it's about relationships and communication, right? If you have a relationship with a kid, use it. And how you communicate about these things matters a great deal because it's so easy to fall victim to that idea of you shouldn't feel this way, which is only going to make things worse versus I honor and accept that you're feeling this way. Even if I don't like it, my life would be much easier if you would just play volleyball today, Carla. I understand though that you're having some big feels about it. So 
Let's you and I work together to figure out how to make gym class work today. And we will deal with the underlying stuff when we can. Right. But it's by acknowledging it and bringing it into the space, you're sort of demystifying the emotional black box. Right. You know, because I think a lot of kids feel overwhelmed and embarrassed and ashamed by their feelings. Right. That gives you, I should have it together. Well, you don't because nobody does. Nobody does all the time. So when we create the environments and we build the relationships where we can talk about these things, it's not that we don't have problems. It's the problems are to go back to that frequency, intensity, and duration. They're shorter, less frequent, and less intense. How can adults genuinely acknowledge intent and impact after a child has an emotional response? And what strategies can we use to encourage self-reflection so that a child can develop self-awareness of their intention and the impact it has? So I always, I like to start with, with a metaphor or an analogy. You know, usually when I'm setting up intention versus impact, I'll say, if you and I are walking down the street towards each other, we're just walking last and we're bebopping along. You bump into me. I fall down the street. I break my leg. You know, like, were you trying to break my leg in the kill? Like, no, of course not. Right. You know, but it doesn't change the fact that my leg is broken. Right. And like, yeah. So that's intention versus impact. You know, so then we, then we, uh, then we compare what happened at school that day to this theoretical example. So we say, Hey, so my guess is that when you slammed the car door so you could get in the in the front seat and your little sister didn't get us in the front seat, you were not trying to hurt your little sister. Well, yeah, no, I just want to sit in the front seat. I get it. She was still hurt by your actions, right? And And it concretizes these things because you're giving it something to compare to, you know? And, you know, and as parents, one of the ways that we can help model these things and demystify them is to talk about times we've screwed up. You know, remember that time, Johnny, that I unplugged the Wi-Fi server when you were almost done with that Roblox game and you were so, 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 so mad at me? Yeah, 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 I remember that. Because kids always want to talk about when we screw up, right? So it's like, yeah, you do remember that. Now, was I trying to unplug the Wi-Fi and ruin your Roblox game? No. Did it still suck? Yes. That's intention versus impact, right? We all fall victim to it. But once you understood that I wasn't trying to ruin your game, I'm not saying you felt happy and fine, but I think you felt less sad and less angry. And it's like, yeah, you're right. So it's about not treating emotional responses as this sort of monolithic, like, I'm angry. I will be angry forever. I am justified in my anger. I'll die on this hill. Because once again, the context about how these things come up is a major variable. Emotional intensity can sometimes be disruptive and negatively impact a classroom environment and other students. And while there's no magic protocol to follow, because of course, every situation is unique, how can educators help develop emotional regulation in their gifted students? And what are some strategies to create a more empathetic classroom? So managing emotional intensity starts with emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is a process. It's a journey, right? By helping our kids pay attention to their thoughts and feelings, we're empowering them to understand what's happening more often. I'm sure you've heard this a million times. 
because like I just go from zero to 60. I don't even understand when I, I'm not angry, then I am angry. And that's a very common thing to say. And the cool thing is that it's not true. Now, it's not intentional where right? your kid isn't lying. But the idea is that if you watch the tape, you're going to see a lot of cues and chip and tricks and hints that means the anger is coming. Storm clouds are on the horizon. Maybe don't set up your picnic right now, right? So when we teach our kids what clues their bodies are giving them and thus us about their feelings, it gives them a fighting chance to see those things and head them off at the pass, right? A little bit of proactive intervention goes a long, 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 long way because once your brain's upset, then it's offline and our coping strategies are, are much more limited. But, you know, it's one of those things. I'm a parent. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Parenting is very difficult. And I realized that sometimes when I clench my jaw, it means I'm mad. I don't want to be mad. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not happy about this, but it's like, oh, my jaw is clenched. Okay. That's a good hint that my body is telling me that I'm angry. Right. And it makes me a better parent and it makes for a more empathetic household because then I can say, oh, I'm getting angry. Either A, I need to take a break or B, let's talk about what's happening. Right. So if you model emotional intelligence and emotional communication in your classroom, you create environments that talking about feelings and processing them is much more normalized. And what that allows us to do then is to not talk about feelings only when they are the most extreme versions. Because the end, what, what ends up happening with a lot of gifted kids is they keep it together, they keep it together, they keep it together, then they melt down for whatever reason. And people give them all this negative feedback. So the lesson they internalize is, I'm not allowed to have feelings, which is almost certainly not true. But the perception of it is very accurate, right? Because every time I get mad, people say like, ah, don't be mad, don't, don't be so mad. And you're like, well, then I clearly can't have feelings. Where it's like, well, maybe instead of that, right, maybe it's more like those feelings are very disruptive. Let's see if we can deal with them before they get so big. And, you know, when you make emotional processing and paying attention to emotions a part of your classroom, you notice when kids are a little bit hungry or or proud or feeling a little silly or have a, you know, or seem a little distracted, right? When you notice those things, it, it turns, you know, it turns that focus inward and it increases its power. Like, oh, I am, yeah, I'm a little fidgety right now. I'm glad I noticed that now when I'm a little fidgety, I suppose when I'm like doing cartwheels off the ceiling fan, right? Because then we know what the interaction feedback for that looks like. So this gives our kids a fighting chance to, you know, to get out in front of things before they get so big. And one of my favorite strategies that you talked about was concretizing feelings. So can you describe what that looks like? And does it look different in children than it does in adolescents? So when we're talking about concretizing feelings is to make them as tangible as we possibly can. Like feelings are these sort of ephemeral things and they, they impact all of us differently. But if you can get a kid to say how they're feeling, one way to get their good thinking brain back online is to add concrete terms to it. So, okay, so what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling scared. Okay, what color is your fear? What? 
What? What? What do you mean? What color? If you had to put a color on your fear, which one would it be? I don't know, purple. Great. You have purple fear. Where is that fear in your body right now? It's in my chest. Okay. Purple fear in your chest. If you could touch it, what would it what would it feel like? It would feel slimy. Slimy purple fear in your chest. How big is that feeling? It's huge. Big feeling. And what shape is it? Oh, it's shaped like a ghost. Okay, so we have a ghost shape, huge, purple, sticky feeling of fear in your chest. What's that doing is that it's adding things to it. And now you have a pretty clear picture in your head, listening to this wherever you are, of a purple ghost shaped thing in your chest. And and that allows, your it brings your thinking brain back online and it allows us to treat it as a problem with some parameters rather than big feeling overwhelmed tidal wave. You know, to your point, right, it, it, this works a little bit better with younger kids. With older kids, right, you know, you might change the questions, you know, color, shape, not so bad, you know, texture, you know, where would you want to put this feeling if you could put it somewhere? I'd want to put it in a garbage can. Where is that garbage can? Uh, garbage can is behind the school, All right, behind the cafeteria, behind the gymnasium. Definitely behind the gymnasium. Why the gymnasium? Well, because that's that's where the kids smoke cigarettes after school, right? It's like, once again, you're bringing their brains back online, right? You know, ultimately, right, it comes down to the relationship you have with that kid and how you're communicating about it. You know, I had a kid who, you know, he didn't like his anxious thoughts, right? So... You know, when his anxious thoughts would show up in his brain, he would get very upset by them. I was like, who's a character you don't like? From any, you know, media, any media thing, he's like, oh, I don't like, um, he's like, I don't like Darth Vader. I'm like, great. The next time you get an anxious voice in your head, don't hear it in your own head. Make Darth Vader say it. So instead of, you're going to fail this math test, it's, you're going to fail this math test. It's like, I'm not going to listen to Darth Vader. I'm like, exactly, right? And, you know, so for your teens, it's a similar thing. Pick somebody they don't like. It could be somebody from school. It could be a grumpy uncle. It could be their boss at their at their job. It could be their soccer coach, right? But if you don't want to listen to that voice that pops into your head, make it somebody you don't want to listen to. And it, you know, it, you know, it's them solving their own problem. We're giving them the key, but they're unlocking the door. Does the communication have to be verbal? Can it be written? Written is better than not. And verbal, in my experience, is better than written. But with an important caveat here, some kids are much more apt and comfortable communicating in in a text environment or a handwritten environment. I've got kids who paint their feelings, right? The style of communication that you are most comfortable with is what's going to be most effective in helping you regulate. So I tend to lean towards verbal stuff, but, you know, I have a, actually have a client I I just started working with who instead of venting his feelings the way he's doing it right now, we sent him up with a blog and he is now blogging. He's got a dragon type. Uh, voice to text thing and he just rants and raves and it fills up the blog and but then you know then he gets it out of his system and it's working for him so you know expression is the key here right Mm -hmm. however 
we're going to be most effective in that is likely to have the best outcomes. If educators had to Marie Kondo their social-emotional toolbox, what's one thing you would suggest taking out and one thing they should add? The one thing that I would say to take out is punishment. Specifically distal punishment. Like, like if you don't do this, you won't be able to go out for recess later. That means nothing to a kid. There are two times, right now and I don't know, some other time in the future, right? So either deal with it in that moment or don't deal with it, right? Now, that doesn't mean let kids do whatever they want. It means most of the time punishment comes from a place of anger or hurt, and we're sort of lashing out. We're getting our pound of flesh, right? I believe in consequences, not punishment. I'll explain that a little bit more. The idea here is if Jane gets angry during her her science lab and like swipes the stuff off the table... Well, then Jane's going to spend the rest of the science lab cleaning up the stuff she swiped off the table, and she's likely to get a zero for that science lab. That is consequence enough. We are dealing with it in the moment. You know, sending a kid out of a classroom to talk to the school counselor or to take a lap, that's a consequence. That isn't a punishment, right? So I would tell educators to to move more towards consequences rather than punishment. Because punishments almost always lead to more problems down the line. And in terms of adding things, I would say add in five to 10 minutes a week of doing non-academic stuff in your classroom that is about kids communicating with each other, you know, and, and developing those relationships and that rapport. Because ultimately, the community of your classroom is what's going to drive the environment of that classroom and thus the effectiveness of your interventions, right? So if you spend 10 minutes a week, you know, playing silly word find games with your kids, right? If you spend 10 minutes a week doing storytelling games or making silly face competitions, whatever that thing might be, you're going to find that kids are much more connected to you and much more connected with each other. That means you're going to have a classroom environment that's going to hold them more accountable and communicate more honestly, openly, and authentically about what's going on. So you'll be able to cut through the content into the process much faster. You spend so much time taking care of others. What does self-care look like for you? Both. That's a tough question. So self-care to me is about... First and foremost, listening to your body. If your body is exhausted, then take a nap if you can. And if you can't have a cup of coffee, and if you can't do that, take a big, deep breath, right? You know, it's not this sort of black box thing. It's, at least to me, it's about listening to your body. It's about taking the the data that your body gives you. So like, you know, the rule that I've come up with is if I get a cancellation and if I'm supposed to see somebody later today and they don't show up, then I, first thing I do is I check in with my body. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm thirsty, I get a drink. If I need to go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom. And then once I've paid attention to my body, it's, it's like, okay, I give myself permission to do something that brings me joy. And that's going to look different for every person and in every different moment. Sometimes that's watching a show on Netflix. Sometimes that's playing a little Pokemon Go. 
sometimes it's like, yeah, I would actually feel better if I knocked this report out. And since I have 45 minutes to write this, I'm going to just do that. But it's giving yourself permission to check in with yourself and and do the things that feel best in that moment when you need to. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Matt. It's been a pleasure. It, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, I hope that this is helpful stuff. And, you know, I mean, if you're going to work with this population, you're going to work with big feelings. So I say we can't run from that. But let me give you the tools to deal with it as best we can. Absolutely. To learn more about therapies for gifted children, gifted assessments, and neurodiversity, go to drmatsikreski.com. Thank you for listening and for being part of the Gifted Place Learning Community.